Four years, the best podcasters from around the world have gathered to review, reminisce, and riff on popular franchises. They've assembled the Earth's mightiest superheroes, traveled to a galaxy far, far away, drank many martinis, shaken, not stirred, witnessed the battle of the Alpha Titan. Defended Earthrealm from Outworld. Get over here! <laughs> Busted their fair share of ghosts. Unplugged from the Matrix. I know Kung Fu. Kept a watchful eye on Gotham City. <laughs> Discovered the secrets of Jurassic Park and other audio adventures. But there were some movies that didn't make the cut. From the creators of Podcasters Assemble comes a movie hype series hosted by a motley crew of talent. Podcasters Disassemble. Welcome back to another episode of Podcasters Disassembled. I'm Eric Slater from Epic Fails of History, Too Young for This Trek, and Comic Zombie. And today I'm joined by... One half of Significant Otter Co., Justin Aki. And I've been fully rated not an android by the Void Contest. <laughs> and of course, uh, we're joined once again by the man behind the World is My Burrito podcast, Corey Torgeson. Look me in my eyeball and tell me I ain't human. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And today we're assembling once again, this time to talk about the iconic genre-defining sci-fi noir from 1982. Of course, I'm talking about Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Kind of nervous when I take tests. Take tests. I've got four skin jobs walking the streets, walking the streets. They're either a benefit or a hazard. They're a benefit, it's not my problem. Not my problem. I'm Rachel. Deckard. Have you ever retired a human by mistake? By mistake, by mistake. No. I need the old Blade Runner. Blade Runner. This is a bad one. Bad one. How can it not know what it is? If only you could see what I've seen. What I've seen. What I've seen. More human than human is our motto. What if I go north? Disappear. Would you come after me? No, you would. But somebody would. It's too bad she won't live. Die. Will you help us? What seems to be the problem? Death. I want more life. An experiment. 
nothing more, nothing more, more human than human is our motto. Starring Harrison Ford as Detective Rick Deckard and based on the Philip K. Dick novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Which isn't quite as awesome of a title, I think. <laughs> no, and uh, not to skip too far ahead into a chat, but that was one of the first sci-fi books I ever owned. I got it five for a dollar at a garage sale. Uh, but I had the alternate cover that was based on the um, the movie. So it was still Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, but the cover said Blade Runner. Huh, that's interesting. That almost feels like false advertising at that point, because as we'll probably get into, the book's very different from the movie. Very, very different. Well, and then, and I would very... even say like the 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 vibe of the book is better done in 2049. <laughs> Just the, the yeah, the that part. makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah. There's actually yeah, I, that's a whole nother podcast, I guess. But we could talk about the sequel a little bit at the end. I was going to say there's also like the whole name of Blade Runner comes from a William S. Burroughs book. Named that's Blade right. Runner, a movie. And we should totally point out that this movie and the book Neuromancer are pretty much the reason that cyberpunk is a thing. All the, hail the cyberpunk. <laughs> yeah, this is the visual because uh, I mean, as like a like super short historical thing on cyberpunk, um, 82 for me is probably like the best year in film oh, it's uh, so good. because it's it's Tron, Akira and Blade Runner. That's all right. in the same year. And uh, the thing, which is not, you know, but still, it's a fucking great movie. <laughs> I would argue that 1984 was a really good year for movies as well. Pretty much the entire decade of the 80s was great. But 84, yeah. you got more comedies that would overshadow the action and the thrillers. Um, you got to also think 1984 was uh, Terminator. That's but what also I was saying. That, uh, what's that movie um, that had uh, the guy with the mustache? Um, Tom Selleck. That was mm. supposed to be like a brand new sci-fi movie, but it ended up being shit. So, <laughs> but yeah, I, I brought up eighty-two because those three movies are kind of the embodiment of the aesthetics of cyberpunk. Definitely, um, even though the term was not coined for two more years, mm. uh, but like literally, Blade Runner, Akira, and Tron kind of laid the foundation, um, the visual foundation uh, for what William Gibson would, you know, term. Definitely. The genre he created. So it is wild to think like when you think of cyberpunk in general, Blade Runner is the first thing anyone is ever going to think of. But Blade Runner precedes that term. Yeah. yeah. To think of those three, that's an unholy like baby that you think <laughs> of. No, because okay, so Blade, Blade Runner's vibe is just dark and depressing and the world exists outside of the characters. But Tron is neon and lifeless. I mean, there's no, there's literally no life except for the one human character. So, yeah, no, totally. But do you determine whether there's actually something human or not based on if they're actual human? But I'm just saying, like, when you think of cyberpunk now, you always think of like the neon car driving through the street and that kind of. It's it's just they, they've all mashed up in our brains, and that's what <laughs> it's become. But it was yeah. three individual movies of of different, completely different like visual uh, identities. Yeah, that's such a good yeah. point. Oh, by the way, the movie I was thinking from 1984 was Runaway, and it has uh, oh. Gene Simmons as the bad guy. It's a terrible movie. It's worth a watch. It's it's worth like a watch along. 
We might have to add that to the list. Zach, if you're listening. Oh. Well, sorry, Zach. I couldn't stop it. <laughs> yeah, I've somehow avoided that one till this point. Um, so I want to start with what was your first exposure to this movie? Do you remember? Let's start with you, Corey. So my first exposure, um, sometime in my teens, mm. uh, I remember my dad, uh, cause it's, it's not as much anymore, but like growing up, my dad was always like, Hey, let's watch this really cool movie. Um, oh, like, yeah. <laughs> whether it be something from his childhood or, something that was uh like i brought up john carpenter's the thing my dad is the yes. one who first introduced me to the thing from another world um oh the, the 50s original version. yeah so yeah. the original the thing so he was he was always like that was our thing like and i, I think it's kind of funny is um like maybe we weren't the most communicative when i was younger but like we always watched cool movies together definitely um so I watched it with him and then it became like maybe like once every three years we'd watch it. And I've watched uh, all of the different versions. Cause like, he'd be like, okay, last time we watched this one, this time we're going to watch this one. He owns the briefcase version oh, of Blade Runner. That's cool. All five DVDs and Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah. With the, um, the metal uh, origami Oh, unicorn man. and all that i remember that um, I, I really wanted it at the time <laughs> yeah so it was it was when i was young and like i have watched it i actually you know what outside of this recent uh the watch for this episode i'm not sure i've ever watched it without my dad huh. um because it's it's like a, we'd always get the same feeling it's been like two or three years like hey you want to watch blade runner yeah sure that's um, awesome yeah so justin what about you man uh, the movie, I, I, not the book. Stop bragging. Well, that's the thing is we'll uh, get into the book. Oh, well, I yeah, we can up, start with that. <laughs> the book in, I want to say 1993. And I probably watched the movie on a laser disc soon after. Now wow. I've, I've read the book like 50 times, but for some reason, someone I knew had a laser disc player with this movie in about 93, 94. So the disc was see, underrated. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, they were so large, but you had to flip them for certain movies. It was yeah. just, yeah. It took like um, six and, movie, six discs per movie or something like that. Uh, we need one well, or two, but yeah, movie. you only got like, yeah, you only got basically like two hours solid out of a laser disc, both mm. sides. Yeah. Um, but uh, the first one I saw was the theatrical release with the voiceovers. And so I know we're going to get into some of the releases oh, yeah. later, but it it's basically it's imprinted on me. So that's my version of the movie. So no matter how many other versions I've seen, and I've seen them all. It's that that version that with the happy ending is my version. But yeah, I saw this. Mm, I was probably about 11, 12, give or take when I saw it. Um, Dang. And that you brought up. You brought up the origami unicorn. I've actually debated getting that as a tattoo. I'm like, <laughs> that's that just, awesome. It just it's a good intro to, again, the cyberpunk and to mm. the, the depressive, futuristic, not zombie based, uh, you know, genre. Yeah. So it's it's definitely a dystopian movie but it's not your typical dystopian movie it's not like it's not like mad max yeah this movie only takes place with it okay the movie only <laughs> takes place within like 12 hours of a man's life there's no it's it you're you're in a portion of it with the whole story behind everything you learn just bits and pieces as people are talking along you find out that hell we've been to other freaking uh galaxies and shit or, or at least yeah solar systems but it nothing's it's just you're stuck on like well you know 
four city blocks of Los Angeles. And we should also point out the movie actually takes place in 2019. <laughs> We're a few years so, removed from that. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely so its own universe. It was supposed to be 2020, oh. um, which like this is a little bit of a it, it's weird. Well, I, I guess just like the timing of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, Nexus six models only live for four years, but yeah. they all failed after three because yeah. like 2016 was the oldest one. Mm-hmm. Um, and like Roy Batty just falls to pieces. It was originally supposed to be based in 2020. Um, but I, I forget one of the people on the crew was like, we don't want people confusing this with like 2020 vision. Oh. Um, so <laughs> literally wow. they were just like, nah, we're doing 2019. And there's actually, um, that's interesting. There's a newspaper that's shown several times that if you stop it and look at it, it says that it's 2020. Oh my God. That's crazy. Yeah, They, they, <laughs> they went back on the 2020 thing late into production. Wow. That's interesting. I wonder if they fixed it for the final cut. Uh, the final cut still has 2019. Um, but yeah. I don't think they changed any. I don't think like, what's the point of going in and editing newspapers that you can't really see? It's the kind of thing George Lucas would do. So, uh, you know, I don't know if yeah. Ridley Scott's quite that, you know, anal about details, but <laughs> he is more anal about the soundtrack. And I yes, always say that from that, interviews, he said he really kind of dug into I when I had my director's cut. Um, the, the theatrical release was pretty much fine, whatever. I had no full editing control, mm-hmm. but the release, the director's cut that they did give mm-hmm. was not his own. And he was pissed because oh, he had specific notes about the soundtrack. Um, and they used some placeholders and they just kept them there. I mean, you, you buy the placeholders, but still, yeah. um, so when he finally did his release that you have in that big ass, uh, brick of, um, DVDs, the, the final, 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 final version mm-hmm. is his soundtrack built into it as well. <laughs> wow that's crazy i had yeah. no idea he doesn't, he, the visual effects were a set he he really trusted his dp he has his own look it's ridley scott for christ's sake right I mean, you gotta think everything he's ever directed it it has a look and he trusts his people but it has a look sure. but yeah he really was fighting on the soundtrack i think at this time he was also i mean mentally competing with john carpenter not on style and substance but <laughs> i could see the that, soundtracks yeah. were a, a, another language to the movie so before we get too far into that uh i just want to back up real quick and say uh the first time i saw this i think was in middle school um and it was a vhs i'm I'm pretty sure i rented it oddly enough you know my dad did introduce me to a lot of uh 80s sci-fi movies but for whatever reason we never got around to this one uh so this was one i discovered on my own uh, when i was really starting to get into film movies and all that in general uh sci-fi you know and uh you know this was one of those that was on like a lot of lists like you have to watch this movie so i checked it out and i completely fell in love with it and i remember i bought the uh director's cut in quotes (laughs) the the vhs and then i got it on dvd years later and i ended up getting the 4k version of the uh final cut then I also bought it on Voodoo. So I've owned multiple versions of this movie over the years. So yeah, I guess let's get into the multiple versions. Um, I know, Justin, you're very familiar with all of that. Corey, have you seen the different versions of this movie? I think the only thing... Um, I want to say I haven't actually seen the the theatrical one. That's the one with the voiceover, right? Yeah. Correct. I think so. Yeah, um, that's the one with the narration. It's been a while yeah. since I've seen that version. I kind of want to revisit it now. Begin again in a golden land of opportunity and adventure. New climate, recreational. Facilities. They don't advertise for killers in a newspaper. 
That was my profession. Ex-cop. Ex-blade runner. Ex-killer. The charmer's name was Gaff. I'd seen him around. Brian must have upped him to the Blade Runner unit. That gibberish he talked was city-speak, gutter talk, a mishmash of Japanese, Spanish, German, what have you. I didn't really need a translator. I knew the lingo every good cop did. But I wasn't going to make it easier for him. Come on, don't be an asshole, Decker. I've got four skin jobs walking the streets. Skin jobs? That's what Bryant called replicants. In history books, he's the kind of cop used to call black men. It's not too bad. I mean, there's 13 voiceovers. And actually, I had to verify that. There's 13 separate voiceovers. And some of them are just literally like a line or two. Mm. Going back, Eric, I just want to jump back a little bit. You said sure. you were in middle school. And you, and you started with with uh, other sci-fi movies. And remember, we just talked about 1984 being the release of Terminator. Right. Going past that point, that is action sci-fi for the public remember sci-fi before was always like this island earth and other shitty films well 2001 so, of course you did have star wars in 77 but that's kind of the uh exception that's, that's, that's popcorn that's for kids it right. really was it was for kids At, so yeah. this the fact that you were not introduced to this in from a 1982 movie after you've already seen other like hard sci-fi movies mm -hmm. this is a talky movie this is there's not that much action when you really consider it. it's a lot of thinking it's a lot of like Mentally yeah. thinking about like death and mortality. Yeah. Now, what I think it really that's why is I dug it human. at the time. So that's I was, why I was going like, through my emo goth phase. So <laughs> yeah. So there's no there's no reason that you would have seen this after you've already seen the other sim uh, like major sure. movies of sci-fi. So I just think it's interesting that you're like, oh, I didn't see this for a long time. I'm like, there's a reason for that. It's a <laughs> it's a weird movie to introduce to a kid. Right, uh, Corey, you were saying something there. Oh, let's see. Oh, so on the the note of the different versions, uh, I think mm -hmm. that's the one that like my dad specifically commented that um, the theatrical one's not that good. Uh, he had mentioned the uh, like narration over it and in everything that I've ever like heard and read, mm -hmm. uh, whether it be people reviewing it or even reading Paul M. Salmon's book, um, nobody liked that. It was one of those <laughs> things that they wow. like wrote. Yeah. And um apparently even Harrison Ford didn't like it. He just, and this, it was like an after the fact thing anyway. So they had to bring him back to record that. And wow. he didn't even like the script. I'd quit because I'd had a belly full of killing, but then I'd rather be a killer than a victim. I didn't know whether Leon gave Holden a legit address, but it was the only lead I had. So I checked it out. Replicants weren't supposed to have feelings. Neither were Blade Runners. What the hell was happening to me? Man, that's crazy. Because it just did. So it was all producer good. notes. Like the producers are like, oh, everyone's going to yeah. get bored with this movie. They had a release. Uh, it was a limited rerun release, and people just didn't get the film. Again, this is a very thoughtful film about what it means to be human people expected mm. like oh i again you go back to star wars i just saw all this stuff now there's robots oh the robots look like people what's going to be and then you're like hey I, i'm really <laughs> sad you killed my girlfriend but i'm going to save you like that think about that kind of shit this isn't a weird fucking movie so the voiceovers they do give 
they're not the best, but it's not. It doesn't take away from the movie. What does officially take away from the movie for most people, I think, mm-hmm. is the happy ending where they literally drive yeah. off into the sunset. There's you an alternate ending. Dark ass fucking like city. Everything is always constantly rain and dark. And everything, and at the end of the movie, spoiler alert for 1982 movie, they literally drive <laughs> off, and and you you see the the, the friggin' unicorn. Like it's that kind of stuff. It's just yeah. That's what stops the movie dead. The original, the movie you guys have seen multiple times. And again, I didn't see it so way later in my life. I saw the theatrical run a couple times mm, when they basically okay. stop at the elevator. They just get into the elevator, the door shut, and it's the end of the movie. Well, yeah. there's a it, it it ends with a voiceover by Goff, um, uh, played by James Edward Olmos, um, mm. and he is or Edward James Olmos. Sorry, he actually the guy is from a Battlestar. Yeah, Battlestar yeah. Galactic. Thank you very yep. much. Yeah, um, so we say, uh, but so say we all. He it, it ends. Yeah, so say we all. <laughs> he ends with his voiceover as well and talks about the. Um, it's a shame she'll never live. Yes, uh, that kind it of echoes. So it, it's yeah, it, it's a repeat it, of the line from earlier. So that's oh, what weird. really takes away from the movie. Not the vo- the voiceovers themselves are fine. Like there's even a voiceover in the fr- in like the first two minutes after the. Um, opening uh flying in past all the the towers of smoke going up and shit there's a voiceover right as you see him sitting down at the chinese place that's it starts off that way it's not weird when you first watch it, it now you've already through. seen the versions without yeah. it it just i'm telling you it's not as weird as you think it's the ending that just kills the theatrical release yeah the report would be routine retirement of a replicant which didn't make me feel any better about shooting a woman in the back there it was again feeling in myself for her for Rachel so I think what they were kind of going for I mean it's pretty obvious uh, is that there's a lot of these uh, old detective you know pulp fiction uh, nor crime thrillers from like the 40s and the 50s and they almost not all of them but a lot of them had like that narration throughout like Sunset Boulevard um, you know, I, I want to say the postman always rings twice also has one. Um, so it was very iconic for that genre. And I think they were trying to replicate that, but it's, it's interesting that that wasn't originally in the movie. They kind of added that they tacked that on because the movie totally works without it. <laughs> you know, it's a very and, visual movie. Um, yeah. and I feel like call, the narration would take away from that. I'm going to call back to the book itself as the inspiration. The book. Actually yeah. So let's talk about the book. Ca- the book had two main characters. You mm-hmm. had um, uh, Harrison, For- you had Rich- Rick Deckard, but he was more of a workaday detective. There was no, <sighs> it, it, it wasn't like he was like the struggling, he quit. No, he was just a, I went into work every single day and I hunted down this robots. That was my job, only yeah. job. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then you also had uh, JF Sebastian as the secondary main character as he meets the, the, the androids and it's not just the first interaction you get with Pris and everything like that it was like a whole side subplot and the work he did as an animal thing which by the way i'll go into the animal stuff later but the animals are a big part of the book and they don't really focus on it in the movie at all so you have but they have i think the the best reference though like i'm not gonna go on a tangent but they um first when he first goes into the tyrell building he sees the owl and oh, asks yeah. if it's real. And she says, of course not. Cause <laughs> in the very beginning of the book, those are the first things to die. Were all the owls. Yeah. All the birds died. And then yeah. the, the, the only thing that was held, um, the ones that were held sacred was turtles in the book. Um, and at the end of the book, Oh, by the way, uh, Rick's married in the book. He does cheat yeah. on his wife uh, with Rachel, 
but he is married and he stays married to her. But at the, uh, at the end of the book, he dro- he goes off into the wastelands, basically Las Vegas. Again, they they used a lot of yeah. settings because they there was a lot in the book that they basically had to just make up for the movie because there was it there was two main characters, so it was split. There was not the same plot um, completely. And so when he saves the turtle and brings it back, his wife turns it over and finds out it has a battery in it, so it's not even real. But that was mm-hmm. a sacred animal because there's a whole religion subplot in the book that we never get in the movie. Which thankfully, I think it would have been weird and hard to. Like can Too show that. Much. Yeah, there's already yeah. enough going on. <laughs> For more of our Blade Runner discussion, including a bonus episode on the Blade Runner PC game from 1998, the anime spinoffs, books, comics, and more, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcastersassemble. Link in the show notes. If you're a fan of this podcast and want to see it continue, help support us on Patreon where you can unlock tons of exclusive content, including, but not limited to, movie commentaries, ad-free versions of our promo specials, extended cuts, early access to new episodes, behind-the-scenes clips, first access to merchandise, blooper reels, and even a chance to vote on what we cover next on our podcasters' disassembled episodes. Just head right on over to patreon.com slash podcastersassemble. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash podcasters assemble link in the show notes from eric slater creator of epic fails of history comes a bold new vision of the future in his latest book 2299 the first thing i notice is the deafening silence of the void feels like plunging into arctic waters nothing reaches my lips nothing but vacuum My body fails me for the last time as I drift helplessly towards oblivion. Darkness envelops me, Lady Death beckons, and I fall into her cold embrace like a long-lost lover. As the end draws near, I can't help but think back to the beginning and the case that led me here. 2299 is a sci-fi noir about a detective on the edge of the abyss. While investigating a cold case on Vanaheim, a space station orbiting Neptune, Desmond Faust finds himself ensnared in a web of lies and murder. Ten years of being a freelance detective, and I'm still no closer to solving my own problems. After signing the divorce papers back on Phobos, I left that dusty rock behind for good. I spent the next several months drifting from orbit to orbit, scraping by with what little charm and stubbornness I had left in me. Looking for work, searching for meaning, but only ever finding myself staring into the black hole at the bottom of the bottle. My half-assed quest for self-enlightenment eventually led me past the asteroid belt, where I stumbled into an opportunity as a private eye. They say you can start over on the fringe. I was desperate for a new life, whether it was in this world or the next. The closer he gets to discovering the truth, the more aware he becomes that he might not leave this place alive. Eric Slater's 2299 is available now on Amazon. So how do you feel like the book stacks up against the movie? Do you prefer one or the other? Two separate stories. They are totally different, right? Um, (laughs) Like when people talk about Harry Potter, like, oh, the book's better than the movie or the movie's better than the book. Those are the same story told from a differing point of view. The book and the movie for Blade Runner almost have nothing to do with each other besides the cast. They're so different. It's more like 
like the movie isn't based on the book. It's inspired by the book, if anything. <laughs> yeah. Again, like they had to make up whole cloth story for Rick. Even the because Trump Blade again, Runner. Yeah. 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 There was a whole uh, one of the he retired the same amount of people in the book and the movie. Mm-hmm. But in the book, there's a whole subplot where he goes to a fake police station run by androids. And there is a yeah. human Blade, Blade Runner working for them that doesn't know that they're all androids. And they have to figure out who is actually like between the two Blade Runners, who is actually human is the other Blade Runner. And turns out that guy is actually just a psychopath and he likes killing. So that's why he makes a good Blade Runner. Yeah, there's there's a Jesus. The book is a mindfuck from 1968. uh, I know. What is it? Um, Fancher was the guy who originally did the script. Um, He wanted to focus on the. the relationship like mostly the romance because he did really want it to be noir um yeah so that it was like okay there's there's a lot of stuff in here we obviously can't do all of it so let's bring it down to um like this core thing of the relationship uh and that's why he got rid of the wife because he didn't want to like drag that out um which i think honestly for him being single in the movie they do a phenomenal job of deckard like struggling with relationships um because he has a terrible marriage and the like literally the book starts off with him and his wife fighting yep wow like that is how the the book intros (laughs) yeah um and it's funny because like she's even mad about him wanting her to be in a good mood so like this is clearly a terrible relationship uh, i will tell you right now i will take an empath box if someone can make me one for real life and i I don't take drugs i can just hold it down (laughs) and be like i want to be happy with the tinge of like nostalgia 644 you know that kind of stuff (laughs) i feel like that's totally possible in our future uh i'm sure there's a mirror uh was it a dark mirror episode about that Oh yeah, the Black Mirror. Black Mirror, my bad. <laughs> Black Mirror. No, you're good. I've already could like messed up so many references tonight. I'm almost like a glass of wine, so <laughs> <laughs> that'll do it. Uh, before we get too much further, let's talk about the cast. So first off, of course, we have Harrison Ford as Deckard. Uh, now it's worth pointing out at this point he's already well known as Han Solo and Indiana Jones. Which hey, fun fact, yeah, he wasn't known as Indiana Jones yet because nope. that released the same year uh i think raiders came out uh 80 in 1980 right let me double check real quick or he wasn't as popular uh, oh it's no, just a year they, before 1981 the, because when they um cast him and they they had picked uh, a couple of different names so one of the things that yeah. like this was kind of mind-blowing to me and let me well, see if I they were being made it. like back to back so like that makes sense. The two characters who didn't really make much of a cut that were considered were Tommy Lee Jones and Christopher Walken. Oh, okay. Oh, actually, Fancher wanted Robert Mitchum um, to play the lead as far back as 1975 when he started. Which makes sense because they were going for the grizzled detective. I mean, that's yeah. literally yeah, 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 yeah. Guess, Mitchum yeah. had been a grizzled detective, but he was like <laughs> too fucking old. Um, <laughs> for this role, and yes. Then, so the the character they landed on and actually had talks with for a while was Dustin Hoffman. Mm, that's interesting. Um, it would have worked. He was a serious actor at the time. You got to think Midnight Cowboy. Oh, I mean, yeah. all yeah. the stuff he had done at this point, he was a, a serious non-comedic actor. That's right. He only started getting into comedy until the early 90s. Yeah, it's usually so the, the other way around. Isn't well, it? yeah, Tootsie. But I mean, but I mean, generally, he was a he was a stage and he did all this stuff. But yeah, like, uh, wasn't The Graduate 68? 
the book was written in 68. So, I mean, like he was a series actor. At the time. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but they, <laughs> point, they had though. considered Hoffman. Uh, it didn't uh-huh. work out. There's nothing officially stating why. Well, clearly. Um, the assumption is probably money. But they it, this was like months long. So they actually like they made changes to the script that could have been got testing with uh, Sean Young as well, because like he I can't see matching up to Sean Young. She's hot. <laughs> yeah. So Hoffman, uh, Hoffman didn't work out. And one of the, the key things that Scott wanted was he only wanted one um, notable name in the mm. film. And then like everyone else had to be low key because he didn't want it to be a star studded film. Yeah, that makes sense. So like most of like Ford was Ford was the person everyone was talking about. So the name was tossed out uh, or tossed around. And then they actually, they interviewed Ford on the set of Indiana Jones. Mm, that's so awesome. That's literally yeah. where they met him. Uh, fun Very little cool. like Easter egg. Do you know? So this is a, a noir, right? A, yes. You know, cyberpunk or otherwise. Why does he not have a hat on? <laughs> and it's because uh, of indiana jones oh. when I first met him he walked off set with the hat on and uh i don't remember who was talking to him but they were like well shit he can't wear a hat because people like, we don't want it. yeah yeah um i'm so, pretty yeah. sure the main protagonist of the video game from 1997 had a hat oh I- i'm 90 sure <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that game in a little bit <laughs> towards the end um yeah hold that thought uh, so speaking of Indiana Jones, though, I just want to put out a quick plug there. Uh, submissions are now open for the next season of Podcasters Assemble on probablywork.com, where we're watching all the Indiana Jones movies leading up to the newest film next summer, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Yeah, <laughs> I will only play the Lego Indiana Jones games to prepare. Oh, okay, dude, that works. They're so good. Anyways, yeah, I can get lost on that one for sure. Um, so yeah, Harrison Ford was like the most name name. Um, a lot of the all the other people in here had some history to them for sure. Like obviously, um, and uh, Sean Young actually bombed her first uh, like tryout. That's crazy. Um, she actually called back and was like, yo, okay. So I was nervous. Like, I really want to do this again. And, uh, I was like, did she show up to the director's house and wait in his bathroom or something? Like (laughs) (laughs) she did pull some weird stuff. Uh, there was that story about her wanting to play Catwoman, and, oh, so that's a whole thing. I don't know if it's so much that she wanted. Well, yeah, no, I guess she did want to play um she yeah she did show up to someone's house like the um, producer's like, house in late but i think this was further down the line um, oh maybe yeah i forget when this was uh but let's see some of the different characters like the character who played pris uh had only been in a couple of small films like the fury and the final terror the final terror is the one that got her the role in this movie yeah, which led to um, her playing in Splash uh, two oh, years ago. That's then. right. Yeah. I didn't recognize her <laughs> with all that weird makeup on. Um, Brian James, who played Leon. Um, uh, let's see. So Brian James, who played Leon, he when they first did the script with him, um, it was a woman who was like sitting opposite him. Hmm. 
And when they got done, uh, you know, Scott or someone, uh, one of the producers asked, like, what did you think? And she was like, he's terrifying because he apparently went hard oh, and wow. they liked it. And they were like, OK, do that. Like, <laughs> he's so very unsettling. Why, yeah. Yeah. I've actually he, heard things that he's a sweetheart in real life. Uh, he yes. died years ago, but he was a sweetheart in real life. But the next year he played in 48 hours and he plays an asshole in that one, too. Mm. So, I mean, like. He was a great actor. He was he came from the stage. He was he was in a couple of movies, but it was like always bit pieces and stuff. Like he was a oh, and a pickup truck driver, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> Apparently he showed up. He'd recently been in um uh, an accident of some sort. So he okay. had like his face was kind of messed up in bandages and stuff. Yeah. And he was thinking, surely I'm not gonna get this role because like I messed up, but I'm showing up anyways. And Scott loved Damn. it. He's like, No, this is awesome. Like, <laughs> yeah, I love this. <laughs> Um, that's great but he he's Ridley the Scott most, seems like a cool guy <laughs> oh yeah but like brian james is the most like formidable character this entire film he's pretty intense um, he's pretty intense yeah. in that fight scene. eric in um yes in a, a side thing brian howard james played uh, a role in the superman 64 video game just throwing it out there what it hit one of his oh, final God. roles was in the that, Pit you're bringing up those repressed <laughs> memories man oh, <laughs> oh that is such an awful game anyway <laughs> uh so we already we already talked so sean sean young played rachel we already talked about edward james almost uh as gaff but rucker hauer is that how you say his name rucker hauer yeah uh, let's go with yes as roy batty is phenomenal in this movie yeah. and i don't know if he did anything prior to this but i've definitely seen him he since did. nothing uh, real that you would know yeah um his next major role that i really truly remember was lady hawk um mm, so he went from that hobo to... with a shotgun okay excuse me <laughs> he's also in batman <laughs> begins <laughs> yeah but it's, batman begins is way down the line after this he was already sure. a household name at this point yeah. i, I want to say this movie kind of set him off he'd been in a bunch of stuff uh, he's been a bunch of German stuff because he's German, I think. Uh, Dutch. Dutch. Oh, okay. So that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Well, when the, I read the this movie shit, it that looks like got this. him this role was Soldier of Orange. Interesting. Uh, which is a 1977 Dutch romance thriller. Hmm, okay. Is it based on the actual like House of Orange? Because that just makes sense to be Dutch. So. <laughs> Let's see. Yep, uh, yep, German like occupation of the Netherlands during World War II. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, cool. everyone had some role. So like nobody would, you know, they, they weren't picking a kid up off the street. And even I did not realize this. Apparently Harrison Ford had been, he'd been in films when he was younger and then quit and then became a stagehand and then became an actor again. I always thought oh, like okay. Han Solo was like his, like the start of his career. Yeah, no, he was in, uh, was not. what was it? American Graffiti prior to that, I think. Yep. Yep, yeah. and actually it was his first role. But then he went right back to go work in as a um a guy who built cabinets and yeah. closets. <laughs> and <laughs> four movie sets though. Like <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Um so yeah, everyone had like a solid uh like a solid background mm -hmm. and it was usually some type of something dark and gritty like similar to this is what got them the role. For sure. uh, um, can I throw it aside? James Hong is in this movie. That's right. And he's in James everything. Hong. Yes. He and he's an, he's he's an amazing fantastic. character actor. Yes, yeah. he is. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. like he's the uh so far, he's the only character I haven't read like what why he's in this movie, but like it doesn't matter. It's James Hong. Like 
He's yeah, in they, everything. He was in the they, book of Genesis. Come on. Well, well they wrote this entire scene with him, the whole uh, eyeball thing, as an aside to show, like, just to transition between the androids going to Tyrell and not. Because in the book, they they don't go to Tyrell. Tyrell just exists. Um, I think that scene's but, pretty powerful, though. Like, it adds a lot. And and one of the things I like about his casting, and really a lot of the, uh, uh, I don't want to call them extras, but the uh, bit part characters, like, um, you know, like the the guy that owns the the food stand that Harrison Ford talks to at the beginning. Like, um, there's a lot of um diversity there, you know. Um, yeah, they were kind of trying to show like what the world would be smashed together like because yeah, after World War Three, everything's kind of mixed. They be, they speak something called city speak, which yes. is like a mix of 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 Chinese and English and it's like, a other mix just of language. about uh it's- like seven or eight different languages. Cause I've got it in For here. Sure. They literally like he went out or um, a couple of people went out and basically kind of learned the basics of different languages and words of different languages and literally mm. mashed them together. <laughs> um, so Gaff speaks uh, city speak, mm-hmm. but um, the Japanese guy speaks Japanese. Hong speaks Chinese. There's a, uh, yeah. a lot of the languages that are represented in this film. So there's German, mm-hmm. um, the, those, like all the languages you hear outside are part of city speak and then yeah. some. Yeah. Well, sure. I just got so, back from Singapore and there's four official languages right. for, for this, for that whole country. Dang. And everyone speaks that's a combination nuts. of them. So like, you're always going to hear mashups and Singlish and just a bunch of like, <laughs> Hey, they bounce that's around. Cool. It's just code switching back and forth. So yeah. most people speak English, but then they'll throw in Chinese words or Malay words or something. So it's just, that kind of stuff. Uh, Tagalog was kind of the inspiration because they said they mm. would like hear someone speaking Tagalog, and then there was just so many English words that that was kind of like, okay, this is oh, what yeah. we need to make. Yeah, there's so many loan words in Tagalog just because of American occupation and American yeah. like support. Definitely, it really um, the the world quick building on that in noodle this. bar. Oh sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. So this is just something that's like super fun and it's hilarious. Um, the noodle bar is named the white dragon noodle bar. It is literally named after white castle. That was the inspiration. <laughs> they, you couldn't that's think amazing. of anything else is like, Oh yeah, no, I love white castle as a kid. And that's why it's the white dragon. <laughs> that's awesome. But yeah, speaking of like the world building here, uh, it really does feel like a mix between, uh, LA and Tokyo. You know, there's, uh, there's even a lot of, um, like all the all the neon signs and whatnot, it's 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 beautiful though. Like the aesthetic here is so uniquely Blade Runner. Um, yeah, you know, it's the, um the fog smilt. Sorry, the fog. Sorry, fog filled. That's why am I in? Why yeah. am I stumbling on that? The <laughs> fog filled city, <laughs> the rain. You know the the lighting, the signs. Like it, it all works so well together. So this is what also works for you, Eric. And I know it personally works for you because the sprawl in the opening yeah. scene, when we see the thing flying, it's exactly like dread where you just see like it an is ongoing city and it just never ends. You don't know where it ends, um, which contrasts with the, the sequel where they go to like the desert and you're like, why, why do they have all this space? You know, because yeah. of radiation, there was a war, but generally <laughs> the sprawl is what sets it off. I will state again, this is now mm. the uh, book aside. The way it is in the book. Um, <laughs> The book, uh, half the sprawl is abandoned because of a thing called Kipple. It just 
it's just the general like buildup of radiation and and dust and decay. Yeah. And so people just move buildings and buildings. We do see it uh, slightly in uh, JF Sebastian's place. There's a four story building with a working elevator, but mm. he's the only person that lives in the entire building because the rest of it is falling apart due to decay. Yeah. You see the 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 police place you know goes over there and you see a highlights and stuff. And there's there's buildings next to him that are occupied but his building is abandoned mm. because everything is falling apart right so they you only you only get a little bit of that in the book everything was falling apart every single thing was falling apart even like for sure on rick's building he lived on a certain floor and some of the floors were not really fully filled mm. because the apartments were just broken like there was no more landlords there was no more stuff things just didn't get fixed if something broke you either fixed it or you <laughs> moved because yeah. there was no one to come fix it for you like Plumbing, when it's broken, you leave the building. So that's that's what they did in the book. In the movie, they made it just seem like, hey, we just have never stopped expanding LA. Yeah. It just keeps growing and growing and growing. Growing upwards, yeah. basically. Um, and I and love that concept. Uh... They really lean into that aesthetic with like all these massive buildings being built on older buildings and whatnot. It's it's crazy. It looks it reminds me a lot of Tim Burton's Gotham City, where it's just like a nightmare <laughs> you know well gotham had its own thing because it was Urban actually sprawl. all designed by the same crazy architect mm -hmm. who was slightly psychotic for sure but like sure. this this was just hey different cultures come in and move mm -hmm. in and that's what they do that's why we have a mix of you know japanese and then the chinese and then like the the street fair but also like the noodle stall like everything's just like if you have space someone will take it yeah and they'll do their own thing here regardless of what everything else is going on for sure there's no a, a quick note because you mentioned um Gotham City. Mm -hmm. Um one of the suggested titles by Ridley Scott himself for this film was Gotham City. No way. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. And Bob That's Kane awesome. was not about it. Yeah, I mean <laughs> uh, Yeah. It is themed on <laughs> Los Angeles. They wanted it to be New York. Oh, but there were there was too much that made it Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, and also they couldn't film in New York. So like I there were certain things they couldn't ignore. Yeah. So they combined it. They're like, okay, well, it's definitely LA, but instead of, you know, 70 degrees and sunny all the time, they wanted that <laughs> rain and that fog and stuff. So it is for sure a mishmash of those two particular yeah. cities. I could uh, see the New York note. influence, especially with that old building towards the end. Because that felt well, like an old ass New York building. That building's actually in LA, which is a funny thing. Oh, really? Uh, but they <laughs> they did film on the New York City street set at in Warner Brothers in Burbank, California. So that's why it matched up. But the okay. actual building in Los Angeles is the Bradbury Building, not named after him, but really? it is a real existing building, and it is a fully functional office building, nice. um, and and residential. Uh, it's also in the movie Five Hundred Days of Summer. At the end, oh, he's wow. sitting on the second floor. Uh, and you could see, you could literally see it's the same, the railings are very distinctive. You can't miss it. Mm -hmm. There's a giant atrium in the middle of the place. It's a very pretty <laughs> building actually, but yeah, they, they dressed it up to be a crazy, just kipple filled crazy place. That's awesome. So the, the Burbank is actually one of the reasons why they couldn't do it in New York because they're like, we can't tell people this is in New York 2019 and then show the Burbank. <laughs> Yeah, um, <laughs> but you did mention the set, which uh, like it's kind of super interestingly important. Mm -hmm. um, the set was fitted over an old back backlot stage of New York, where they filmed the Maltese Falcon and the Big Sleep. Oh, that's cool. Oh, look at that! I had yeah. no idea. Bringing it back around. Yeah. That's cool. So the set was very well like um, 
the the way that the design of the world came about uh ridley scott himself was a great doodler yeah um like he he's that asshole that could like grab a <laughs> napkin and just draw an entire scene on it in like five minutes so it's like dude screw you like <laughs> i can't even draw a stick figure um yeah he's talented man he he could draw these ideas and then you have sid mead who could implement um, them right well okay here's the thing <laughs> mead was only hired to draw five car designs that's all he was hired to do oh that's interesting but the reason why mead was as popular as he was also justin this is like your expertise <laughs> um do you know what mead's daily rate was oh i do not know what mead's daily rate is so his daily rate at this time was fifteen hundred dollars a day Dang. Which in today's in money <laughs> is four thousand nine hundred seventeen dollars and sixty nine cents a day. Yeah, that's a lot. So <laughs> they needed like any time they were talking with him, they're like, "Okay, questions, questions, let's come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, draw something quick, quicker, quicker." You know, because <laughs> meat is one of the reasons why they were like burning out of money. Dang, um, that's crazy. The, the mead's popularity came not because of his. Uh, it's it's weird to say this. Mead was popular not because of his scenes. It's mm. because he would be hired to do something tiny mm -hmm. and then draw a scene around it. Oh, okay. So he was hired to draw the vehicles and then drew the world. And Scott's like, yo, this is fire. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and they wanted to imitate, like, Scott had his own ideas and Mead had his own ideas. And they're like, okay, we got to do both of these things. Yeah. And it works. So, it somehow yeah. works, you know. Uh, the hover car designs are really great, but I do love that skyline. Um, and the movie does like it's almost a character in this movie because we spend a lot of time with it. The The great thing about the aesthetic here and the reason I put this one above the sequel is because it's all practical effects and it looks freaking amazing. Terrell's yep. building that that uh cyberpunk Weird, pyramid, like pyramid you know? thing. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's so like a pyramid what may what makes it's an that, arcology like, it's an arcology from Shadowrun. it literally takes up like 17 city blocks it's like a ziggurat it, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah but it's what's cool is it's not just a pyramid mm. this thing is so big and they have those massive panels outside of the pyramid that are almost like levitating off of it yeah because it's tough. it's not just like an exposed pyramid it has those weird like panels on each side and it's like what like <laughs> you just had money for this yeah like these can't even they, there's no way these could stand on their own weight like this you know it's mind-blowing yeah and mm, then when you think definitely. of the scale like you you've seen the, the approximate size of the spinner yeah and the spinner is a car and the car's just a little bit bigger than a normal car and then it's dwarfed by the size of this damn thing when it lands on like the 53rd floor you're like it's well shit <laughs> yeah yeah that's a really good point they do a great job of, of establishing that because we start with harrison ford at the noodle bar and he gets in you know the police car it's it's not much bigger than a regular police car but then it's you know starts hovering and then that's when we get the full cityscape and then we see it just you know it's it's completely yeah like you said dwarfed by this massive massive building and i, I just love that which, again, going back to the practical effects and world building, the flying cars are kind of shitty. Like, they, yeah. they're they loud helicopter-style devices. If anyone had those in real life now, you know how many damn accidents we would have on a daily <laughs> right. basis? Because no one looked up 
No one looked around. They just like looked at their console and then they kept uh, flying. I'm like, bro, like there's that's a reason. And I, I think assume there was some kind of auto autopilot thing this going on. Movie like those are only owned by specific people. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, so, like, you, have you have to, to have, have them. a certain license. Yeah. There's not a ton of them. Like if you, it, no. I think the most you see in a single scene is like seven. I, and I'm yeah. pretty sure they were mostly police escorts. I will say I buy these hover cars way more than the ones in like back to the future too. Cause that, that was absurd. <laughs> the ones that only, the only ones that truly made sense on film to me uh-huh. were the fifth element because they had yeah. all of the, all of the world to fly around in, but they still stayed in traffic lanes. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, it makes the most sense because you get fined or you'll get like shot down if you leave your lane. So like the fact that these ones were kind of crappy and they're always like, is it going to, is it going to lift up or not? Like you don't know every <laughs> single time. Like yeah. what's the fuel source? And I, I don't, I want to take an aside because I've done 30 sides on this one. The whole world of this world is kind of decaying because right. of world war three. Mm-hmm. The fact that they have flying cars, what's the power source? Is it fusion? If they have fusion, why are they all struggling? Right. Two, <laughs> so they're, we they're almost have fusion motors. in the real world. <laughs> yeah. The, these ones like they're because they make a point. Like it is insane what these people thought about. They right. they have like an answer for everything. For sure. Um, the cars don't hover. Like the they're not hover cars. They're using jet. It's they're aerodynes, not hover cars. Right. Um, right. But they're using like essentially micro jet propulsion. Mm-hmm. Um, like that's. I mean, when they lift off, that's why there's like smoke coming out of it. It's because it's literally a jet lifting off the ground, um, you know, as be- as best as it can for being a tiny motor on a very yeah. heavy vehicle. <laughs> I don't care about the motor. I care about the fuel source. Like, yeah, fuel takes well, weight. <laughs> and I know we keep bringing up the sequel, but uh, the whole premise as to why people weren't living in the cities, if I remember correctly, is because there was this massive blackout, right? There was like an energy crisis. Uh, and, uh, and I think that was delved into a little bit in the anime. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the anime Wasn't was pretty bomb. There was a couple animes. We'll talk about that later. But uh, mm-hmm. um, so, yeah. So I don't think they have fusion if they're having <laughs> like these uh, catastrophic energy issues. I only put it out because the world is supposed to be in decline. Mm-hmm. But at some point you do see... Harrison Ford with these wonderful chibi glasses, which I'm still trying to get a copy of, take a <laughs> bottle of Johnny Walker Blackout and not treat it like a special occasion. He's just drinking it. So I'm like, well, they yeah. still have booze. So That's what is all the world have. of <laughs> <laughs> like what is what does the world of Tennessee look like in the world of uh, oh, Blade that's, Runner? That's, that's what I'm just trying to think they of. just have hot and cold running liquor. Well, there, <laughs> there's definitely a lot of speaking of how run run down everything is. There's a lot of themes in here about classism. Um, and I think that really kind of pushes that to the forefront because we spend most of the movie, you know, down with the regular folk. But then we go to Terrell's place and it's this like, you know, completely extravagant place like that. He has all to himself, you know, and uh, I, I just love that. Um, you know, I, I can't think of the term right now. <laughs> you know, the dichotomy i guess it's like yeah it's juxtaposition juxtaposition that's the one the fact that he has the marble floors on that height of that building like even if it's Mm. all synthetic like that building is all fully like create and the space everyone's cramped together and this motherfucker has a football field of an office right with the with a fake owl flying through it yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's even like a line about that like you can afford that you know i don't know 
Or he asks, um, is it expensive? And she's like, of course it is. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah. Like, it's so, yeah. That I whole conversation that. is fantastic. Do you like our owl? It's artificial. Of course it is. Must be expensive. Very. I'm Rachel. Deckard. Well, that is the that is the book. That's the calling out to the book aside because in the mm-hmm. book, everyone and their mother apparently um, really live and die by this monthly published price of animals, which oh. throws me off every single time. I'm like, so everyone carries around in their back pocket, or they know off the top of their head their favorite animal and how much it damn costs in this mm-hmm. book, and so they always refer. So he will literally hear about something, open up the page, and look down and see like what's the cost of the live animal in good health, bad health. Male, female, old, fake. Like that's straight up. Like huh. they all know yeah. this stuff. That's like their and so stock the fact market. that they have a conversation about the uh, yeah, it's, just, it's literally a stock market <laughs> because animals are the only true things that they can't recreate because everything's synthesized, everything's fake. They fake people for Christ's sake, right? And they fake animals that are almost indistinguishable. That's the thing so, you can't even tell. Like they have to have a whole freaking test to tell whether someone's real or not. Yeah. So the only thing that is real is the animals that they want to control and Mm. own as a symbol status. So in the movie, they have a throwaway line like, of course, it's expensive. Like, you know, someone had to engineer this out of like flesh and DNA and all this fake shit to make a fake goddamn owl. (laughs) And and in the the the, in in the in the book, it was like everyone traded animals. And so this is just their throwaway. Like, hey. We're going to discuss yeah, animals for three minutes. So everyone's like, oh, yeah, it was in the book. Oh, my God. So, yeah. <laughs> um, that's, so, that's one thing that's always stood about me, though. The book was everyone just knew the prices like they were fucking trading cards. Right. One thing that really stood out to me this time was how much the movie focuses on eyes. And in that scene with the owl, you see the way the owl's eyes reflect back. And then you see the way Rachel's eyes reflect back. And so it's telling you, the audience, subconsciously that there's something different about them. You know, <laughs> uh, they do it with um, Leon mm-hmm. in the beginning, but they were using that was I, for being like the first scene in the movie. That's also one of the earliest shots they did. So they weren't using the same type of lighting. Mm-hmm. Um, so it it happens with Leon as well, because on this watch through, I was like, this is kind of like shitty if you're trying to say that <laughs> all of the people with reflective eyes are replicants. But uh, it's um, because that was earlier on in production and they yeah. they found a different way to get that reflection. But yeah, that is the the like key thing is that the um, pupils glow. Essentially, they reflect mm-hmm. light so much better. We touched on this very briefly, but the sound design in this movie is incredible. The Vangelis soundtrack is one of the best movie soundtracks I've ever heard. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah this I, is... I'm a, I love some synths. Just going to throw it out there. Right. Like, synth is my, my jam. So, and this, like, this movie synth is and sax. <laughs> It's like, like it's like just, this in the Daft Punk uh, Tron Legacy soundtrack are like way up there for me. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I could hum the sax line from this movie for like 12 hours straight and not miss like anything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you're um like for those listening, if you're big into anime, like on this watch through, all I can think about is Cowboy Bebop. Oh, my God. Yes. You know, very similar <laughs> aesthetic where it's that like, you know, not true noir, um, but they're still doing that. You know, like uh, I think it's just titled "Love Song" is the one yeah. with the uh, it's definitely like, an long, drawn-out sax. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's perfect. But yeah, I, I haven't really read much on the the soundtrack itself. Um, like I haven't reached that part yet. But I mean, it is just the the beauty of the soundtrack. Um, like, not to say that there's anything wrong with like the Daft Punk Tron soundtrack, but this to me is like that purer form of I'm going to take just Mm -hmm. old music, like a very old sounding genre. And I'm just going to like lightly tweak it. And yeah, then you have this like entirely new thing, but it's, it's also like kind of timeless because, you know, unless you were there, it's going to sound just like it would be older music. Definitely. Um, a lot of it, not all of it, obviously. And, but and it, it did stand on its own, and that's the thing: is it was its, it's own damn thing. It has yeah. such a unique sound. Like he really did an amazing job with this. And I want to say I read that he did this whole soundtrack in like a week or something crazy like that. It sounds like Jay Dilla, where he's just like, <laughs> "Ah, here, kid, have a couple of tracks." Like he threw it together, yeah. and it's like ended up being like one of the best movie soundtracks of all time. Yeah. Uh, Again, I, I brought it up earlier. He, don't forget the competition that they kept thinking about was um, Carpenter. Yeah, Carpenter, because uh, Carpenter makes his own music. Yeah. So and it's all awesome. right. like it's all. Oh yeah, the synth. Carpenter music's amazing. <laughs> uh, so this he used a Yamaha CS80 synthesizer. Which I'm I'm a, a kind of a nerd, and I want to say <laughs> he used it again again within Rucker Howard. Well, he used he a few Hawk. things, but that was like the main thing that he used. Yeah. Because Lady Hawk, the entire soundtrack was provided by the Alan Parsons project, mm. and that was pretty much nothing but synth. So <laughs> yeah, uh, apparently- it's, it's a it was a uh, what's that damn movie? It's like um medieval times with synth. It was great. Yeah. So- <laughs> apparently, at one point, he ran some something through a vocoder of some kind, a VP three thirty vocoder plus. So yeah, he did some interesting, like really experimental stuff with this. Uh, the way like he lingers on certain notes it, it's it's like it's this, it's this very otherworldly like ethereal feel to it you know it, it really if you don't know what a vocoder is uh anyone a vocoder is the same thing that they use in do you you yep feel like i do do you feel like i do you know that kind of stuff <laughs> exactly. you talking about t-pain <laughs> not t-pain <laughs> i guess you know usually zach's here to kind of walk us through the movie scene by scene but we have talked about this quite a bit already so i guess what i'm going to say is what are your standout moments from this movie like what are your favorite scenes two scenes in particular uh one the opening interrogation scene where they're trying to mm-hmm. determine uh with the void cam test whether someone and you don't know what it is at the time you're, yeah. you're really like what is going on? They have this thing <laughs> zoomed in on the eye. We just talked about the eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're it's asking a, some very odd questions. You only get like, I think three questions in the movie. There's about 
eight that you get from the book that are super fucking weird. Um, I do have <laughs> yeah. a board game called Inhuman Conditions. It's a two-player game where someone has to determine whether someone's an android or not. They, the oh, person knows, cool. they find out on a card, they flip a card and says, you're an android. You have to get the person to say this word like three times and you win. You get to kill them. Oh, uh, there's, a, there's a whole, yeah, it's actually a very fun two-player game. Eric, next time we hang out, we should play it. Definitely, um, I'm down. And then of course, and, and you're probably going to say this too, but the tears in the rain, like that. that yep. That's mine. 42, 42 <laughs> words. And it's one of the most powerful themes in, in all of movies ever. <laughs> I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watch sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears in the rain. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tenhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost. In time, like tears in rain, time to die. Time to die. Yeah, I I know my shit. That that (laughs) that whole thing, right? And and this is where the world body comes in. Because remember, this is like twelve hours in Rick's life. But we find out at this point, and we know they're off-world, but we don't know what is off-world Mars, is off-world whatever. We realize that this, this motherfucker's been a soldier in like other places. Yeah. What the hell? What the hell's a sea beam? What? 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 Are we, what is, what's Tannhauser Gate? Like you don't know. It's just it's they so leave mysterious. It, and then the movie ends. Yeah. Yeah, and it's right it, at the end. This is that like anime shit where mm-hmm. it's just like I don't know what this is, but I'm invested. Right. It's some serious world building that we get as his last lines. Uh, yeah. So it's like pretty. It's it's haunting, you know, <laughs> uh, and it's very moving. Like the delivery is where it's at. Now, from what I understand, um, the script had different lines here and they were changed during filming. I think I don't know if the actor himself came up with them. I'm pretty he sure did. He, he cut did some lines. He is a poet. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think it's gorgeous. You know, he, so he did a lot um, like, for example, uh the james wong scene um so leon goes up and sticks his hand into um a vat of something that should you know freeze his hand immediately if he were a human Hmm. and rutger hauer responds yes questions (laughs) and he he wholeheartedly believed that it's like you can do a lot with less yeah he's unsettling in this movie too yeah, he is. And like his his dialogue is really weird, but he did make a lot of changes, but it was just like, OK, like, you know, he did what you're supposed to do as an actor. Yes. And like someone will write a script and like, sure, maybe you'll record those lines, but mm-hmm. also like the script is directing the character. But is the character going to say that exact thing? That's just mm-hmm. the direction. Like there's there's a you know, an A and a Z and like everything in between kind of doesn't matter. Like you just have to reach those points. Well, and and the weird, the weird way that 
like it really works with the character and it's it's something that all the actors that play replicants do in this movie they don't there's something off about them right <laughs> like the uh, yeah the androids don't think the same way we do and that really comes through with the way they deliver those lines and the way they act in the movie it's because you have grown ass adults who only have the lifespan of a four-year-old yeah and it, you, you get it when he's literally yelling at um tyrell he's like i want more life not not anything he only wants the he, he wants something he can't have like yeah. they can't like because these aren't these aren't robots this is not like the terminator underneath this this no. is all synthetic everything it's synthetic blood synthetic bone synthetic dna synthetic cells yeah. and it has well, a here we don't it know recreate. that i know Which but is, like yeah, you get the, you can you find out later but yeah. it's he they want what they can't have because you can't re-engineer DNA. It's already there. Like the cells are dying. He dies saving mm. Rick, but not because like, Oh my God, I could, you know, live for another. He knew literally like he probably had a like internal countdown timer, like five, yeah. four, you know, that kind of stuff. He knew what it was. Yeah. He could feel it. Uh, what about you, Corey? What's, uh, what's your favorite scene? Um, I mean, it's still probably going to be like the tears in the rain. Um, yeah. But one of the things, <laughs> yeah, it's a, yeah. Like, what a great freaking ending for a movie. But one of the scenes, uh, because we inevitably have to reach this that I like more and more because it changes my perspective of the film, mm. um, is the second time Rachel visits. Um, oh. and then it's the kind of super awkward, uh, the rape definitely scene? sexual violation scene. Yeah. Um, I, am, uh, yeah. I really, really want to know, um, um, like what's your, uh, you know, what do you think about sexual things? You know, that, that whole thing was creepy as shit. So it's what, what I enjoy about it more now, because Blade Runner is one of those that I feel like as you watch it over the years, you will always find something different. Mm -hmm. Like as a child, you'll be like, wow, flying cars and lasers. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then you and, go down a layer further. <laughs> Yeah, it's, and then it's uh, like, it's, oh, we're all gonna die. It's Dante's Inferno, and then like you eventually reach the bottom where it's the rape layer, and it's like, well, you know, maybe I shouldn't have watched this that many times. Yeah, um, there there are no heroes in this film. No, even though oddly enough, like the way everyone talks about Rick, it's almost in this like heroic sense. But this is just a story, mm -hmm. and Deckard is a means to an end. But Deckard is not the hero. And, but like what I love so much about this is he has that kind of solo uh, Indiana Jones esque, like rebel. Like he, he gets essentially kidnapped in the very beginning of the movie. Mm -hmm. um, he's voluntold and he's eating the, the noodles in the cop car. <laughs> yeah, in route. In the spinner. Yeah. So as like this defiant act of is like, well, if you're going to take me, I'm going to eat anyways. Um, like these nudes are going to get cold, bro. Um, <laughs> but he's, he's still this like very fun loving character. Yeah. But so everything is framed to make him look like, like a hero or like an underdog, but he's a product of this shitty world. Yeah. He's he's not the hero. He is also the issue that is around Damaged. him. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he thinks he's something better, but he's not. Um, he tells Rachel to tell him to kiss her. And then I think after that, he asks if she loves him. And then she says she loves him. 
And it's like, this is all very uncomfortable. Yeah, because the implied, yeah, it's... Yeah, you're so, not <laughs> supposed to like him, but you do because of the framing, not right. because of his character. Yeah. I think what they were going for was that he was, because he's a Blade Runner, because he has to hunt down and kill these replicants, I feel like in that moment he's trying to dehumanize her and like trying to remind himself that she's not real, but he's, he, he you know, he's playing a trick on himself because he doesn't actually believe that, you know, no, but at yeah, the same time, that's also to kind of agree with the fact that he's just a product of the world that he's in. Right. Because that man, the, the framing, that soundtrack that's playing when he's doing this scene, it is so damn good and it's so romantic. <laughs> Nothing he's saying is romantic at all all yeah like it is so creepy but the the soundtrack over like outweighs it by far the whole point is it's are you human or not and he asks if he loves if she loves him because he knows she's a robot or an android like she he doesn't know if she's been programmed by tyrell to seduce him like there's a whole what's what are you here for like you you know in the in the happy ending version like she apparently is the nexus six or the nexus seven that can live forever there's not Mm -hmm. like gonna decay or whatever we don't know that now so it, the whole point is like we're trying to figure out we we know at this point she's supposed to be an android because it's been talked about yeah. in the scene with Tyrell. What is she there for? What what like what is he getting out of her? So, because he doesn't know if she's been programmed to be his foil to shut down the Nexus 6. What's the plan? Because Tyrell is a bastard and he's a triple billionaire over, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um and even the um I was going to say you brought up the sexual assault thing where Zora, the stripper in the book, uh it's Luba Luft the opera singer. It was basically a lot more high class oh, okay. that they, uh, he was, he went to go assassinate an opera singer, not a stripper. So it, it's just the, the difference is where they show like, Oh, well she's a stripper. We can treat her like trash. Meanwhile, in the opera singer version, like the, everyone treats her very nice. And even the execution is not a good thing. He feels bad about it later. And in this, she's uh, her function yeah. is retrained, like her listing in the beginning when he's looking at the character traits. Mm-hmm. Um, her function is retrained the 9th of February, 2018, polit period. So I'm assuming political homicide. So she's an assassin. So she's an assassin yeah. to get close to. Yeah. But that's I, interesting. her, I'd never thought, never really paid attention to it before. Zora has, she is probably like, it's it's hard to say that uh, like anything can beat Batty, but her character's so good because they yes. even they tell you like verbally they tell you she's an assassin, mm-hmm. um or like kill they how however they phrase it is this like aggressor, and she's a stripper which is not an aggressive role it's this very like hide from everyone and then when there's that whole when, scene with the glass. Yeah. Well, yeah, she runs through the streets Even and her hides among the is, people. Is uh, see through. <laughs> oh yeah, which I I loved. It's kind of funny because like she punches Deckard and then like looks around for something to wear and grabs the transparent coat and mm-hmm. it's like okay, so That's you just what a robot <laughs> round and you're still wearing nothing. Yeah, <laughs> but I I her character I think has such a great like development for mm-hmm. only being on screen for like five minutes. Yeah. And you feel bad for um, her. I mean, at yeah. least I do like it's tragic. Yeah. Pris goes in the opposite direction where it's like, you never really know what her motivation is. She's scary. Um, <laughs> she's she's the joker scary. of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> she's but, very Harley Quinn. Uh, there's something 
kind of weird that I picked up this time where I almost feel like Pris was bait because of the dialogue between like Batty and her. Mm. And like, there's no way that Batty couldn't have known that she would not stand a chance against Deckard because she's they, all show. She's not military. She's not an assassin. She's literally entertainment. Don't forget. They killed uh, um, Holden pretty easily. Or uh, the, the other guy, they thought that he was oh. going to be a pushover. And you also got to think they had JF Sebastian. That's actually, I think why Pris liked Sebastian or he was just That's like, right. I really like you just being around. Well, it's really fun to have. People. I think she only liked him because he was a means to an end be- because He's the one who designed her. And I think her character is great because like she isn't strong. She has to like succumb. She has to use her wiles, which I mean, it's Sebastian. Like you, you can have one while and that's probably all it takes to like be (laughs) friends with him. Right. Um, But she's like, okay, well I'm in a room with this guy. And then she calls her friends and then they find out that he is what they need Mm -hmm. because when they originally went to Tyrell, two of the replicants died. Yeah. So now Batty and Pris see like their literal key. Man, that whole sequence with all the toys was so creepy. <laughs> uh, Dude, it, I can't get that friggin' his little soldier friend. Yes. With the big, with the big nose. Yeah. 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 Especially it's with like, the feel, dental man. mouth. I think the scary thing about the replicants in this is that they're so unpredictable, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it, like like Justin said like the Joker you know like you don't know what he's going to do next and yeah. it, it needs to be said but when Batty gets into serious mode he gets naked <laughs> that's he's, right and grabs the dove and yeah oh, it's man. but it's I almost want him disarming. to win you know like yeah you know like Decker kind of sucks at this point you know <laughs> well and that's um like I think that's the beauty of it is yeah like Deckard is clearly outdone and Mm -hmm. we don't know Batty's intentions. And especially because this is 1982, there is no sequel. Uh, There was a spiritual sequel in 1995, I want to say. Oh, with the movie soldier. It's kind of a spinoff, isn't it? Yeah. Because it it is in the same universe. In fact, the replicants are towards the end. Um, But yeah, so that is basically what. Oh, with uh, Russell. Yeah. The Kurt Russell. Batty's character is is the the soldiers at the very end, not the human soldiers that are basically trained from birth. It's crazy that we have all this technology, but the world's still a shithole. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I should ask, do you guys think that Deckard is a replicant? Because that's like one of those big... I didn't hear this theory. Yeah, I didn't hear this theory until way after I had seen this movie about a billion times. I had no... I I didn't think at all he was a replicant. Um, If you consider the sequel, like actual cannot like canonical to this movie he is he has to be really i because he he lives like where does um gosling meet him Mm -hmm. he meets him in a radiation oh in the radioactive land yeah and gosling and him are the only two people who can survive everyone else needs gear to even enter Mm -hmm. the area but, so to me, that's like the most it's and I didn't even I did not come up with this myself. Someone but, like offhandedly mentioned it. Uh-huh. And it's like, yeah, that makes sense. So I actually thought the opposite, but that is a good point. But I assumed that because they had old Harrison Ford coming back for the sequel, I assumed they were doubling down on the fact that he wasn't a replicant. 
because he lived so long. Because, you know, replicants have such a short expiration date. Like a, such Only a short the Nexus six, 6, we like replicants in general, they never mention anything else. So the 6 specifically has a four-year lifespan. Um, and if you do, like if you view him as being a replicant, um, like based on the fact that he can survive the radiation. Yeah. Um, in this movie, it seems awfully interesting that a Blade Runner uh-huh. is always on the heels of another Blade Runner. Because Gaff is always, like he always knows yeah. what uh, Deckard is doing. That's interesting. <laughs> well, in the book, He's like his Gaff was actually an android that Deckard had to kill. Which is very funny that they reversed it. Like, they if you're going to say that Deckard's a, yeah. a replicant, which I still don't think he is, just because forget even the the happy ending. Like, yeah, it, it, they they make it really clear that the only human in the damn thing is him. And even in the book, mm-hmm. they had the whole is he is he is he is he, and they very at the end clearly make it that he's not. Yeah, but mm-hmm. I, I never thought he really was a replicant. Even in the sequel, I just thought he was old. I didn't think that he he was like first of all we have technology go off world and they had off world technology. I think the cancer wasn't going to kill him. It was just the old age and the shit that was going to kill him. Sure. Even like the, the wood they found, like if that thing was like, Oh, well this is radiated. You know, the only place they find this is in like the, the off offerlands or wherever the hell it is. Mm. Like the tree is radiated enough that they could pick it up. Well, any regular Geiger counter should be able to pick that shit up from like a mile away. You would think they had to have Geiger counters everywhere if they're worried about radiation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm I'm I think I'm going to go with I don't think Deckard is supposed to be a replicant. I I do like the ambiguity of it, though, and I do like those scenes that kind of hint that maybe like where he's like, actually, I think he actually does question whether or not he is one. Uh, but I think the point of that is to illustrate that there isn't much of a difference. So why are we treating them differently? You know what I mean? It's yeah. like the whole Cylon thing in Battlestar Galactica. Uh, well, in um, so like as far as the context of this film, I do feel like he's very much a human. Yeah. Um, I mean, he gets his I, ass. You know, I base that. Yeah. <laughs> but um, we don't really know what the replicants are because they never specify in film mm-hmm. what they are like, because you you think and that's uh, one of the reasons kind of why they specifically didn't want to use Android um, because it, uh, Scott never liked the term Android um, like Oh, okay. Just, yeah, he never liked the term Android. He hated when people used it around him. Um, And then uh, Replicant, I think, was like someone's uh, sister or niece was a nurse or doctor or something. Mm -hmm. And they were like, yeah, there's this thing called replication. And, you know, they got the term Replicant from there. But, um, like in this film, he definitely feels very human, but we don't know what the replicants are supposed to be. And it's not until, um, I guess, like Pris and Batty towards the end that mm-hmm. you for sure, for sure see blood. Oh, okay. Because every time yeah. you see anything else, it's like there's liquid coming out, but it's like you never get a clear shot of blood. Uh-huh. Um until like Rutger Hauer starts like wiping Pris's blood on his face and then starts bleeding all over the place, um, you know, from injuring himself and stuff like that. So you don't really get a clear shot of anything. So it, it allows for the ambiguity of like, okay, well is like you, you see 
like goo in a, a shower and it's like is that leon's blood or is that Le- or, uh, zora's blood or is that um you know oil like it's too dark to really see what it is and um the, the beauty of this film is deckard never exposes what he's thinking mm-hmm. because when he first finds like the the snake scale like he he touches um he like touches the blood or whatever it might be and then grabs the scale so it's like okay dude what are you touching right now you're just like sticking your hand in shit <laughs> like yeah. like i the viewer need to know what's happening right now but they never do that he never he never has and maybe the the theatrical is different but he never has any narration that's like oh must be blood you know like mm-hmm. a fucking witcher three quote <laughs> um, yeah you know that's great so yeah no i i uh, like it's in this movie, it's cool to think that he is a human who's kind of coming to terms with like things aren't mm-hmm. the way that I thought they were. Yeah. Um, and sort of realizing that he's kind of a bitch. Like he he's the best Blade Runner, but he is nothing more than a tool. Makes sense. Which the funny thing is, yeah, like wh- wh- why and wh- why are they hunting down the androids if they only have a four year lifespan, right? Except yeah. the ones who killed people to get off world. Like some of them didn't. They just escaped. Yeah. What's the point? They're basically human. And you're yeah, just saying, just oh, well, live. yeah. Like, why are you dedicating an entire department's worth of resources to track down a bunch of rogue slaves mm-hmm. uh, when they blend in in the own population? They're doing regular work. It, it just it's an allegory for all the uh, the. Legal immigration that we have in, exactly. and it's, it makes no fucking sense. Yes, people have done crazy <laughs> shit in war, but I also the some of the, the people, there. some of the people were soldiers. You train them to kill, like they're gonna, mm. you know, frag their superior officer, and then just like, well, uh, you know, it's bad that he did that. But why are you hunting down the stripper that maybe she has, maybe she hasn't killed anybody, you know, that kind of thing. For sure. So, yeah, that is one of the things I don't think they ever really wrapped up is the like why the necessity of killing. Yeah, Leon was a well, trash. No, they, I guess they man. did because like, it intros with um, the the six of them like killed a crew of people to get off world. Yeah, I get that, but like, did all six of them kill him? Like, is there no like trial <laughs> or whatever? Can you just collect your slave back and maybe put them into a different line of work? No, you have to kill them because I think they the fear all the way is back that home. <laughs> because they do mention like they gain uh they're they're gaining feelings basically it's like they're not they're not catching the feels is the worry yeah and at the time we don't know that they're not like robots that can plug in and like give sentience to everything else either so yeah we know now that they're bio you know they're biological and they can't exactly be like well here's uh the program that i used to escape and make myself free no they just all eventually will become baseline free Mm. (laughs) even in the sequel like they, they have to keep testing them to be like Hey, are are you uh you want to riot yet? You want to riot? <laughs> Let's put you in the thing. Uh, bucket, bucket. You know. Yeah. Yes, yes, that kind of thing. So. So one so, of the things that I hate a lot the first time Brenda watched this movie, and we're talking like, um, I don't know, ten minutes into the movie, whenever they're doing the uh, uh reviewing the replicants and like talking about the lifespan and stuff, uh-huh. um. Brenda was immediately like, they just need a better HR department. And I was like, what? <laughs> and she's like, why she's are they right. telling the replicants they have a four year lifespan? Don't tell them that. 
Oh God! <laughs> just don't tell them they only live for four years and that people an naturally die in a show. Yeah. yeah, it's like they'll literally never know. And I was like, shut up. Just watch the. Just shut oh, up and watch man. the movie. Yeah, especially sad. if they're same cohort. Like, say you get like uh, twelve replicants shipped to you, and they're all the same year. They're gonna <laughs> die within like a couple of days of each other. There's nothing you could do at that point. I mean, if you have one that's like a year old, and you know three that are like three years and six months, and they all die at once, you can be like, oh, I don't know, some weird bug. Just maybe stay away from the bodies for a bit. Thanks, guys. Yeah, that 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 totally makes sense now. That hey. Um, just don't tell him we're going to die in four years. Done. That's yeah, the only thing yeah, you have to do. Like, by the way, you've only got four years. Don't go on a murderous rampage. <laughs> yeah, that's that's so, basically like letting a death row prisoner out. And wait, wait, making him a soldier with guns. <laughs> okay, Russia. <laughs> yeah. <wow. Oof. laughs> Topical. So real quick, uh, we've mentioned it a few times, but there is the sequel, uh, Blade Runner 2049, which came out in 2017, starring uh, Ryan Gosling, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Um, and we may have to do a whole episode on that one at some point. So I'm yep. you know, not going to spend any more time talking about it. Uh, but there's also... You know, before I forget, I really wanted to mention there's also uh, a lot of fan theories out there. We we talked about that movie Soldier earlier, the 1998 sci-fi movie being connected. Uh, there's fan theories that the Alien universe and Total Recall are also connected uh, because of Tyrell and Wheeling Yutani. <laughs> well, I will say it is best to remember that um, Ridley Scott worked on both. That's true. Uh, and speaking you know. of speaking of the alien franchise, we actually recently just covered uh, Predator and Prey, and we're considering doing Alien and Aliens pretty soon. So keep an ear out for that. Uh, so any final thoughts on Blade Runner before we get to the plugs? Um, uh, if an intro to sci-fi, I would watch this movie, and I would consider reading the book. Um, again, two separate storylines, two separate anything, but it's a good sci-fi series before we really got like true cyberpunk with um with the sprawl series i mean like when, once once you get into Neuro- yeah. yeah once you get into neuromancer that is like oh, yeah. defining everything so basically we, we talked about having the baby between tron and this movie <laughs> to give you like true cyberpunk mm-hmm. but neuromancer is what set the plot forward like hey japan's going to be the future and all this other shit going on like it, there's a whole it's it's and, one stepping stone in another, and you don't really get the full picture if you're starting to watch stuff now that is now stuff. And then Johnny Mnemonic came around and ruined it for everyone. Hey, you know what? Shut up. That movie's <laughs> another guilty pleasure of mine. I'm just kidding. It is, it's great. It's a lot of fun. Um, I Yeah, so, I really love yeah. Blade Runner. I highly recommend the final cut. I think it's a gorgeous movie. It holds up like crazy, except for that one really awkward scene, which we did touch on. Uh <laughs> Um, other than that, I, I think it's awesome. Yeah. Blade Runner. It's great. Um, it is one of my favorite movies and even for sure. Um, like the more, it doesn't matter what the context is, whether it's like positive light or negative light, it always makes me like the movie more. Mm. Um, because I just feel like they're, I feel like it's, it's like, yeah, by the way, you know, cutting that onion, it's not black and white. Yeah. Yeah. It's not. And I am a huge fan of, um, the like confusing like wait a minute which character am i supposed to like again (laughs) yes you know um like that's a very big thing in the gundam franchise is like these guys are the bad guys and you're like why aren't they bad then um (laughs) yeah so 
I, I appreciate it more and more. Um, also like for outside Blade Runner content, uh, I, and I think it's still only providing the Kickstarter rewards, but there is an official Blade Runner TTRPG. Um, oh, that's which, pretty cool. Yeah, that's, I don't know if I sent it to you directly, Eric, or put it in the discord. Um, but I received my copy of it like two weeks ago. Oh, nice. Um, I wouldn't mind rolling up a, uh, yeah. a replicant. <laughs> yeah. Three of us should, should try to get together for that at some point. Yeah, I haven't I haven't cracked it open yet because, you know, it's the busiest time of year. Yeah, um, <laughs> we're recording this but, right before Christmas. So, <laughs> yeah, so it um, no Blade Runner is great. It's good. Uh, like if, if you want an introduction to how cool cyberpunk can be, um, you know, watch cyberpunk, the animated series on Netflix where it's like th- this is the child of what Blade Runner created. It's nowhere near near as like well, I don't know. It is very stylistically cool. <laughs> um, they do a lot of smart stuff in that, but it's not like hammering in a lot of the questions. I, yeah, I it's think it's not cool for the cool sake. <laughs> there, yeah, I think there are a lot of similarities as far as like the whole tool conversation, like a tool of your society, but trying to think that you're like stand out and something different. Mm. Um, but yeah, Blade Runner, it's great. It'd probably be like the second or third thing I would show someone for like cyberpunk sci-fi. Just be like, all right, let's ease you in and then slam <laughs> you into you this in. like moral quandary. I don't know. I think this is kind of deep cut sci-fi at this point, uh, but I, I love it. I really do. I feel like I'd probably show people like come to think of it. 2049 is a lot more digestible. Oh, so I'd probably so? show them that first. So yeah. I know a lot of people who don't really like Blade Runner. It just doesn't do it for them huh. or they just don't like it. I mean, yeah, fair um, enough. Yeah. Like every single one of those people is like, yeah, 2049 is great. <laughs> like that's a great it's movie. 2049 is written with the same story arcs and, and thoughts and heroes we're considering going into. That's why they had to do the voiceovers for the first movie because nobody freaking got it. And again, yeah, someone it ahead of its watched time. it all and you really had to have that the inner monologue. You don't get the inner monologue in 2049, but you can literally see the emotion on characters' faces. Harrison Ford does not emote. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. you, you kind of really point. need someone to describe what's going on. And yeah. it, you really get it in, in this. And there, there is exposition in 2049 uh-huh. that would be so out of place in in the first movie completely. For sure. Because even, even the side characters in 2049 where it's like Freya and the whole like uh, replicant underground and shit, like – you literally have them describe what their plans are and what their goals are. You don't get that in the first Blade Runner movie. Mm, so you yeah. have to have the voiceover for it to make sense. That's why I do think it's really hard to digest for new people. And I really think that even though, you know, Ridley Scott has his director's cut times four or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> try out the theatrical, theatrical cut sometime, maybe yeah. skip the, the last 10 minutes, which by the way, that, that 10 minutes or the three minute uh, thing of them escaping to the good life was directed by, um, What's his name? Um, uh, the Ch- Shining. Uh, Stanley Kubrick. Oh, Stanley Kubrick did Stanley that directing. Kubrick. Like, wow. So that's why. Yeah. The, just keep that's in mind, it's not interesting. It doesn't add to the story, so you could drop that point. Yeah. But it does continue in 2049, where you they do actually do that. They run mm. off and start a life together. Yeah. So I'm just saying, like, if you're going to show someone the entire run, maybe do both theatrical runs. And I I, I say that because 2049's uh, director's cut is really good, mm. but 
the theatrical run is still long as shit and it's enjoyable. So just try them, try them with the voiceover and then try the theatrical of 2049. I think or, you might get Or you could it. watch the final cut and then watch those specific scenes on YouTube. <laughs> which is what i'm gonna Make do right easier. after this <laughs> so uh where where can people find you Corey? so if you want to find me uh search for the world is my burrito or twimby that's t-w-i-m-b podcast on any social media and uh anywhere you get your podcasts my podcast likely drops there um so yeah, I'm most active on Twitter. If you ever want to reach out to me, uh, twinbeepodcast at gmail.com. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm always around. Justin, what about you, bud? Uh, I am one half of at significant Otterco on Instagram. Most of the, uh, pictures on there right now are of my recent trip to Singapore. Um, I have nothing really going on right now besides work, which is kicking my ass. Uh, it's glad to be back on two of some sort of podcasts haven't been on in a while um <laughs> hopefully more to come in 2023 again work's been just crazy busy so i haven't done anything really art related uh i will be participating in indiana jones coming up and i might even get uh, the other half significant article on so should be fun and you have been consistently on epic fails of history because we pre-recorded a bunch of stuff so <laughs> oh god yeah we're gonna basically you're gonna drop like in a month an episode a month a month a month a month and be like wow i don't even remember recording this <laughs> <laughs> i still have uh, like two more clips uh on the next like two episodes but yeah we'll have to get together nice. for a for a live recording soon for that one again um but before i go i did want to point out that my newest book 22.99 is out it's available on amazon and audible yeah, if you like Blade Runner, check it out. It's the sci-fi noir, uh, heavily inspired by this movie. But I do want to point out that Justin Aki actually did the cover art for it. So it originally yeah, was going to be inspired by Blade Runner, and then we switched. We went through. a whole different direction <laughs> with it, but I think it's amazing. I think you did such yeah. an awesome job with that cover. <laughs> Thank you. I just think it was very funny because uh, I'm looking at the uh, the screenshots for the Blade Runner video game. I'm like, wow, I basically just copied this shit. Didn't <laughs> Copy <it>. paste. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be some shit if, like, in the hardcover version, you had one of the little sound things in it. So when you open up twenty two ninety nine, it's like <laughs> just like plays the soundtrack. <laughs> just get you in the mood. Just play the Blade Runner soundtrack while you're reading. I should point out, uh, uh, Deathstroke Sound Vigo himself uh, did the music for the audiobook. We have a little bit of music there. It's just at the beginning and the ending, but he did such a great job. My only direction to him was like Vangelis, Blade Runner, go. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, like make it your own, but that's that was the inspiration for it. And he really he really went somewhere cool with it. So, yeah, um, I think that's it. Sounds cool. good to me. All right. Uh, so we I guess we just um, kind of disassemble. Yeah, podcasters yeah. disassemble like a replicant. All these words forgotten like tears and rain. I didn't know how long we'd have together. Who does? Podcasters Assemble is a production of the We Can Make This Work, probably, podcast network. Find more of our shows at probablywork.com. And learn how to contribute to future episodes of Podcasters Assemble by looking us up on Twitter and Instagram at Casters Assemble or joining our Discord page. Link in the show notes. Submissions are always open. 
Music by Deft Stroke Sound. Voiceover by a guy in a basement with three daughters who's just glad he's not on food stamps. This episode was edited by Eric Slater. Thank you to everyone who was able to contribute to this episode. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to where you can find them all online. Thank you. I don't know why he saved my life. Maybe in those last moments he loved life more than he ever had before. Not just his life. Anybody's life. My life. All he'd wanted were the same answers the rest of us want. Where do I come from? Where am I going? How long have I got? All I could do was sit there and watch him die. This has been a presentation of the We Can Make This Work Probably Network. Follow us on Twitter at Probably Work for more of our questionable content. Also, we have a website called ProbablyWork.com. I'm going to grape you in the mouth. No. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, It's great. He's going to grape him in the mouth.